0: that we meet at the 1130 service, this service. The service is translated into Spanish, so we have a Spanish translator in another room that's actually interpreting for people that are part of our community that speak only Spanish. And so when they hear a song in their language, it brings them back home. (laughs) It's something wonderful. Are you ready for the word? Good, good. Well, I like to pray before I teach, and so would you bow your heart with me, please, as I lead you in a word of prayer? Holy God, I ask that you would just come and minister to us through your word, transform our thinking, our attitudes, our actions, so they are in sync with Scripture. I ask that you would just bless this time in the word, in Christ's name, amen. I want to begin a brand new four-week teaching series titled The Generosity Journey. In fact, that's the title of this particular sermon. When you read the Bible from Genesis, the first book, all the way to the last book, Revelation, 66 books, you'll find that there's a recurring theme of generosity. We serve a God that's big-hearted. In fact, Martin Luther, the great German scholar, called John 3.16 the the Bible or the gospel in a nutshell. That single verse captures for us how big-hearted God is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. We serve a God that is a consummate Generous being. And he wants us as well, his children, his sons and daughters, to also exude with generosity. In fact, there's a whole host of benefits associated with being generous. Proverbs 11 verse 25 says, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. So when you think about being big-hearted, being kind, God says, you're also going to be the recipient of blessings associated with that. Isaiah joins the conversation in chapter 32 and verse 8 when he says, but generous people plan to, to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. So here we're seeing then, generosity is not some ad hoc oops, shoot from the hip kind of action. It is a planned, intentional, strategic outflow of a heart filled with kindness. I take you back to Proverbs 22 and verse 9, which says, whoever is generous will be blessed because he has shared his food with the poor. So God tells us then, generous people will be blessed I want us to have a foundational definition of that word, generosity. It means the quality or fact of being plentiful or large. The quality of being kind, understanding, and not selfish. And the willingness to give money and other valuable things to others. So that's a threefold definition of that word, generosity. As the story goes, the wise old man was walking through the mountains in his country and he happened to walk through this dried up riverbed and when he looked down, he spotted the shiny, glistening, precious stone. He knew it was priceless. He picked it up, put it in his pouch kept on walking. Shortly, this Stranger, this passerby, happens upon the old wise man and he says, Sir, do you have any food that you can share with me? I'm hungry. And the old man opened up his pouch to get some food, and the stranger saw that shiny precious stone. And then he changed his request. He said, Can I have that precious stone? And the wise old man, he smiled and he reached down into his pouch and he gave the stranger this. This priceless stone. The guy was so happy, he's smiling and walking into the nearest city. And he's thinking all the food that he can buy, all the fancy clothes he can buy and wear, and how he'll be set for the rest of his life because this gem is so valuable. And then it dawned on him. That wise old man must have more to offer. So he makes a beeline back to the woods, finds the man... And he gives him back the stone and he said, sir, because you're able to give me this priceless gem with a smile on your face, you must have more to offer me because you're so generous. Can I be your student and learn from you the value of generosity? I wonder, I want us to go on a journey together as a family of believers. To try to understand the big heartedness of God. And what does it mean to go on a generosity journey? And the question that comes to mind is this. Where does the journey begin? May I bring you now to scripture and let's camp out in the text. Because generosity begins in the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. It's so telling. It's almost as if we have these treasures. For one person, it may not be a treasure, but for the next person, that's your treasure. And God always. And this is one of the things I hate about God. You may say, you hate things about God? Absolutely. And hate may be a very strong word, but okay, I dislike. It bugs me. I'm perturbed. Annoyed. I may have a hundred things. All of them are valuable. But what I really like is that. God overlooks those hundred things and he says, David, can you give me that? When I came to Christ, it was July 6, 1982 at 10 p.m. I know the time, I know the place, I know the moment because it was so stark, my conversion. I was an atheist, card-carrying atheist. And when I got born again, something happened in my heart. Apart from me being forgiven of my sins, my worldview changed, not just about spiritual things, but about my stuff. And I was in college, I was, a, you know, just finished up my degree in mechanical engineering and getting ready for grad school, that'll take place in the fall, and, and I'm hanging out on the college campus, I'm working there, and I was getting, you know, this is a small amount of money, you know, the synonym for a student. P-O-O-R. I mean, and that's just, and that's where I was. But something had happened in my heart. I just started thinking and listening to people, my friends. And sometimes you'd hear them say things like, man, last night I I was so hungry. I had to wait for the next morning for the cafeteria to open. I, I didn't have money to buy a burger. And then something happened in my heart. I felt I wanted to do something generous for that person. So I'd get an envelope I hardly had money myself. I'd tuck a $10 bill in there. Sometimes I'd get an envelope, put a 20 in there, and put a little note, anonymous, it'll say, thinking of you. I'd go to the student union building with the sealed envelope, find their mailbox, stick it in there. To this day, they didn't know who it came from. God had done something in my heart. And so I've been on this journey of generosity for decades now. But there's always growth. You never arrive. You know how it is. Kids, when they first learn to talk, before they say mama, daddy, they say mine. You try to take a toy from a little kid. You try to take a french fry from them. They didn't buy it. They didn't drive there to get it. They didn't cook it. You try to take one. First word, mine. So they say. You know why? Cuz generosity starts in the heart. Jesus says where your treasure is that's where your heart will be. Fast forward now, I'm pastoring. A lot of years went by since that <laughs> since that dropping the 20 bucks in the envelope and those things. I get my first invitation to speak in South Africa. I'm excited. I'm in Cape Town, South Africa. And you know, when you go overseas, you try to get back some souvenirs for family, for close friends. And I, I had gotten a couple of things, but I wanted something for me. And what I wanted was a lion's skin. I say a lion's skin? Yeah, yeah, that's back then for it was illegal. lion skin. With the head on it, with the fangs, with the teeth. And I bought one. Pricey, but I got it. And when I brought it home, you know where I put it? Before we had property, the Montclair campus, this Rockaway campus, we were renting space, uh, you know, office space, and meeting in a catering hall, and I put it in my office. And I put it on the floor you know, where the head faced the front door, or the door to my office. You know where I'm going. And one evening, I was in there, and the door was closed. I was doing my work, and the, you know, the lady would clean the office. She, she didn't know I was there, and she just opened the door and started walking in. And when she walked in, she saw this lion looking at her like that, and she just screamed and closed the door. And I have a dark sense of humor, so I just laughed. I mean, I just I couldn't help it. I just laughed. A week later, I'm counseling a couple in my office. I had turned the lion's head around. Now, this is the rug around because I figured I'm scaring people when they come in. So now, here I am. My desk is here. There are two chairs on the other side of the desk facing me. And so, the lion's skin and the lion's head is now facing my desk. It's facing me so I can enjoy my gift to myself. And so, I'm sitting there. And then, then the couple I'm counseling, the wife, she couldn't engage. She just kept looking back. And she's sitting like this, just getting her run, just to run. If the lion moves, she's running. And so this is going on. And so I realized I can't, I, I can't keep it in my office any longer. So then I said, okay, look, and then I get a letter from, from, from a group that says Uh, And a hefty donation has been made on your behalf from the endangered species of lions in South Africa. And I said, man, I got to now take this lion skin out of here. And so I decide I'm going to take my lion skin home, put it on the wall. As Soon as I walk through the door, my wife says, you better get that out of here. I don't want a lion skin in my house on the wall. Can't take it to work. Can't take it home. So I was going to be like James Earl Jones in the movie Coming to America. And I was going to figure, let me at least put the thing on me. And so it just, it wouldn't work. It didn't work. And so I'm stuck now. Can't take it home. Can't take it to work. Can't wear it. And so I'm telling, I'm commiserating with my friends in Atlanta. And he says, David, give it to me. My wife won't struggle with it. I said, what do you mean give it to you? You know how much money I paid for this? Now here's where this generosity issue comes in because generosity starts in the heart. You know how much money I paid for this? It was about $2,000. I'm talking about 20 years ago now. This, 2,000, that's a, that's a lot of shekels. And my friend says, give it to me. I said, I can't give it to you. I said, you got to pay me for it. He said, no, 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 you give it to me. So I struggled. And I decided to give it to him, folded it up, put it in a carton box. I had a speaking engagement at Atlantis, I'm gonna take it with me on the plane. This is before 9 11. So I'm going through TSA. And you know, when they take it through that conveyor belt and it scans everything, you should have seen the person sitting there looking at the scanner with the fangs and the, the mouth. He jumped off his chair and screamed. He said, what do you have in that box? I said, sir, I begged him, please don't let me open up that box. You know how hard it was for me to stuff that lion skin in there? They let me through. But what I learned that day is this. Generosity begins in the heart. Are you on the journey, the generosity journey? Psalm 112 verse 5 says good will come to those who are generous and lend freely who conduct their affairs with justice. The psalmist is admitting that because of the grace of God he had extra and he was not a hoarder so he was able to lend freely because he was generous. So the question that comes to my mind is this, when should I begin this generosity journey? It should begin the moment you realize the benefits associated with being generous and how generosity is so much like your heavenly father. The other question I ask myself is that if I look at the scripture and search from the beginning, Genesis, all the way through 39 books in the old, 27 books in the new, and come to the final chapter, chapter 22 of the final book of Revelation, what do I find as the starting point to generosity? And I found this. It was the topic of the tithe, giving God 10% of whatever you earn. And that was not generosity. It was just a door. It was just a gateway. It was just the access and the entry point to get on the journey. Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. If you want to buy back the Lord's tenth of the grain or fruit, you must pay its value plus 20%. Count off every 10th animal from your herds and flocks and set them apart for the Lord as holy. The writer is telling us that the ancient people of God, they were primarily farmers, a pastoral people, herdsmen. They were agrarians. And the Lord said to them, to get them on the road towards being generous like he is, that they ought to give him one-tenth of whatever they produce. In fact, when you understand the culture of the text, the Hebrew farmers and herdsmen that would take, particularly the herdsmen that would take this long wooden stick, wrap a piece of cloth on the tip, Dip it in blood, and then would count off the animals as they're coming through the corral and make sure the tenth animal belongs to God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Touch it on his side. Boom. Dedicated to God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Touch it. Tithing is an act of worship. It doesn't reflect generosity. It just reflects that you're starting on the road to generosity. It's the starting point. And so, we primarily in this particular community of believers, we're not farmers, we're not herdsmen. You might work in IT, you may work as an administrative. You know, executive, you may be a consultant in leadership, you may be a medical doctor, you may be an attorney, you may, you know, no matter what your profession is, the scripture treats each of us equally. Every dollar you make, God says, give me 10% of it. Now, God also makes provision. He says, look, if you're going through a tough time and you actually Use your tithe for your own purpose. You had to pay extra oil bill. And you didn't anticipate it. man, my tithe, let's say your tithe is supposed to be 200 dollars a week. Means you make 2,000 a week. That's pretty good. OK? Six-figure. Welcome. And you had to use the $200 to pay your oil bill that was, you know, oil prices. They shot it up when it got cold and you didn't anticipate it. And you said, I got to take my tithe and use that. Scripture says in verse 31 that if you borrow the Lord's tithe, first God said, that's mine. But if you borrow it, bring it back later and add 20% to it. You said, well, that's not right. Well, God says, this is business. So 20% of $200, that's $40. God says, I don't want just 200 I want $240. is God saying? God's saying, I want you to learn to discipline yourself and to anticipate and to guard what's going on in your financial, in your coffers, so this way you don't use my stuff. Now, this is getting you ready for that. Now, the Bible says the tithe is holy. That means you set it apart. You know when I learned how to tithe... It was about a month after I became a follower of Jesus. So I'm 20 years old at the time. I didn't know anything about a tithe. I never heard of that word before. Growing up as a child, my parents, they they weren't people that were christ Honoring in terms of scripture. They had religious overtures. They wanted us four island kids to go to church and learn certain morals and certain basics. Even though they didn't understand what the Bible taught. And so they would give us monies before we went to the local Methodist church down the corner, down the block. And said sometimes they'll give us a dollar each. or Sometimes they'll give us five dollars each. And so when the offering plate passes by, you put that in. So they knew enough to say, you need to give a gift to the house of the Lord. So that's all I knew. You just give a buck, give five bucks, that's it. But yet, I had no idea what the Bible taught. I had no idea what God expects of me. Until I became a follower of Jesus. A month into my conversion, I hear the first sermon in my life about tithing. My mind, I was shocked. I got to give God 10% of what I earn? I never heard of that before. All week, I struggled. Now, I was a grad student at the time at Stevens studying environmental engineering. And, 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 and I was a, a scholarship student. And I would get $570 every month as a monthly stipend. That would take care of your books. That would take care of my food. And now, all week, man, that was a tough sermon like some of you now. I get it, I get it, I get it. All week I'm struggling. I got to give $57. Man, I remember writing out that check. My hand shook. I don't know why, I mean, I've paid more for other things. But now I'm... I'm being asked to give to God, not in an undisciplined, slipshod, ad hoc, whatever I feel like, in a principled way, though. Roll the check out. Man, that Sunday when it rolled around, there I was. Sitting there in my jeans, my t-shirt, 20 years old. That offering basket passed by. I took that Check out of my pocket, $57. Drop that thing right into the offering. And I didn't realize that something was about to change when I did that. Something changed in my heart. Instantly, I felt this sense of deeper devotion to Christ. You know why? Years later, I discovered, again I quote the great German theologian Martin Luther. He said, people go through three conversions, the conversion of their head, their heart, and their pocketbook. Unfortunately, not all at the same time. So what his observation, the reformer was saying to us, is that uh, you got born again, you gave your life to Christ, you, you by faith you were saved, your sins are washed away, it happened this particular time for me, it happened July 6, 1982 at 10pm, that's when my heart, that's when my head, I gave my heart to Christ, my head was aligned, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple of Jesus, that's where I am. Now, about a month later, he had my pocketbook. I didn't realize that my devotion was going to be deepened at that moment. Because I recognize, looking back, I can describe to you what happened. I became more fully devoted to Christ. I was all in. I gained also a greater grasp of my finances. It forced me to look at the 90% and then really make sure I was managing it properly. Why? Because I would now given 10% to God's work. It forced me to deal with the 90 in a more manageable and healthier strategic way. You know what else it did to me, which I never knew it would do? It changed the way I looked at the local church that I was a part of. I no longer said I go to that church. I said that's my church. It deepened my sense of belonging in the community. I, I felt as if this is, these are my people. This is my family. I'm walking with them. It changed my perspective. It brought a deeper sense of belonging that whatever happened to that church, I can't let it happen to that church because that church is my church. So when I gave my $57 in there, it didn't feel, it wasn't about money. It was about community and belonging and connectedness. It deepened the sense of roots, all of that. So God's not interested in your stuff. He just, he's interested in your heart. I know some of you, you're, you're Bible scholars, and you'll say, Pastor, come on, oh, you're misguided, man. Tithing is an Old Testament practice. It's not in the New Testament. Well, you're partially correct. Before the Mosaic law, Abraham tithed. Genesis 14. So, tithing predates the law. I read to you in Leviticus 27, which is within the law. Now I want to bring your attention to Matthew chapter chapter 23, which... Predates the law. Jesus is speaking. And Jesus says to us in Matthew 23 and verse 23 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. Mercy, faithfulness, justice, without neglecting the former, without neglecting tithing. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So Jesus was affirming to us that, and we can read it in a more plain sense in Matthew 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. So I want you to see that in the New Testament, Tithing, giving one-tenth to the work of the Lord, it's still the entrance, the gateway, the doorway to journeying and generosity. And you've got to think through it all the way and reason through it. Because if, in fact, tithing was abolished with the law and the law is no longer there, then you have to think about the other elements of the law as well. The Scripture says in the law, the Mosaic law, thou shalt not murder. But based on the thinking that the law is outdated, we're in the New Testament now. Murder whoever you want, whenever you want. We're under grace. Well, the law says you shall not commit adultery. Oh, but we're under grace. Sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Why? We're under grace. The law says you shall not steal. Oh, but yet we're under grace. Steal whatever you want, from whomever you want, whenever you want wherever you want, because we're under grace. Ridiculous, isn't it? So I want you to see that the New Testament is teaching us that this doorway into the journey of generosity, is still there. And may I now bring you to, as, as we're coming to wrap the point up, I want to present to you an opportunity that will, it's, it's going to fit two kinds of persons. Beginning on March 14th, our church is going on a 90 day generosity journey. Two kinds of people will go on that journey. The first kind, you have never tithe before, you have never been consistent when giving God 10%. We're going to help you by putting training wheels on you through blogs, through articles. And even through financial counselors from people, that's their profession, that's the area of their gifting, and they're part of our family, and they want to give back and say, let me help you better manage your monies so you can handle what God calls you to handle in terms of your spiritual responsibility, and get on that journey so you can get all the benefits associated with being someone who's generous. That's the one kind of person. The other time says, look, I've already been tied, that's old hat, someone like myself, that's old hat. But... Can you see, though, that there's more room to grow? Can you see that if you would then become more like what God God calls us to become, something powerful will take place with your life as you practice generosity in an ongoing way? It's It's not just for where you are. It's for it to continue and for you to grow, no matter who you are. I want you to see generosity begins in the heart, and you should begin the moment you learn that there are benefits associated with it. I want to end with a question. The question is this, why take the journey? And I believe that you should take the journey Simply because apart from all the benefits associated with generosity, how God will prosper you, how you will be able to help others, how you'll be able to see God do amazing things because he's big hearted and kind. Apart from all those things that I've listed already and more that you can come up with, I want you to see here's a central reason as to why take the journey. John eight twenty-nine says, Jesus is speaking. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus is telling us that the reason why I am walking with God the Father and sense the abiding presence of God the Father always is because I always do what pleases him. The word please in the New Testament Greek, which is written in, is Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E, classical Greek. That word please, it means approved, favorable, well-received. Jesus says, I always do what God approves of. I always do what is well-received by God. You know what that word really speaks about? It's a, it's a relational word. It's a word that says, I know what pleases my Father, and I do what pleases Him. John 8 verse 29 from the message version, different translation, gives a different wrinkle of Jesus' statement to his disciples. The one who sent me stays with me. He doesn't abandon me. He sees how much joy I take in pleasing him. Man, that's pretty powerful. Jesus says, look, I take, I take. Joy in pleasing God. And this pleasing God thing is it's it's something that we should all aspire to do. I remember fast forward now from my stories. I'm in grad school. First time in grad school. I've been in grad school a lot of times. First time. I sent out my resume to get my engineering job, for my kid I wanted to be an engineer. There should be no reason why I didn't get a job, 3.8 GPA, I thought I was, I got it. The only job I could find was working in a pizza factory. I wasn't a design engineer, my job was to stand up in front of this mechanical chute the conveyor belt next to a chute and my job was to make sure the pizzas didn't jump out of the conveyor belt so I had to push them back in. I still got the action down pat. Pushed them back in. Some of you ate the pizzas I packaged, I pushed them back in. And I was a Christian at the time for about six months, eight months. Man, I hated this! But it was the only job I could find! And someone said to me, David, what kind of God you serve that can't give you a job in your field? And I answered them because I had the same question. I sent out several other hundreds of resumes. And there are people in my graduating class, they're getting multiple job offers. Me, zero. Sometimes God has you in a trial to get certain junk out of you. And you hate it. The only job I could find was working in a spaghetti factory. I wasn't a design engineer. I'm working in a spaghetti factory. What was my role? I had to stand up on this huge platform 30 feet in the air and take raw spaghetti out of a brown carton box, reach down, drop it into the mechanical chute so when it slides down it gets packaged. Reach down, grab it. Stop me now, please. Reach down, grab it. Master's degree in engineering. Reach down, grab it. Started college at 16. Reach down, grab it. My boss who had a third grade education, he used to embarrass me in front of all my coworkers. He'd yell, out, up, yell up at me, Hey, David! Everybody stopped what they're doing, Look. You're doing it the wrong way. Now, there's no wrong way. (laughs) He just wanted me to feel bad. Man, I hated that job. Lunchtime, I went into my car out in the parking lot. I had an old beat-up Peugeot. Everything was wrong with that car. Even the chassis shook. You knew I was coming like a block away, just vibrating. So I'm in in the car, sitting in the driver's seat, I'm just reading my pocket New Testament. I mean, I, I still wanted to grow in the Word even though I was mad with God. And when I'm angry, I use big words. So I'm, in, I'm praying now because I was so mad, I took the New Testament, I flung it down on the passenger seat because I figured, you see how naive and immature I was? I thought God would be mad when I just throw this down, and I just show, show you how, you know, how, look at how you're treating me. I'm supposed to be your boy. Boom, there, there, there goes that. Do something about it. what are you going to do. And so here I am, I'm praying, I'm using big words. I'm telling God how disappointed I am with his leadership and how all of this omnipotence. You can't get me a job in my field. I paused because I ran out of big words. I wanted to figure out, okay, some other big words to let God know, know how angry I am. So I paused. When I paused, for the first time in my life, I heard the audible voice of God. I can tell you verbatim today, though that happened 40 years ago. God said to me, David... If I want you to work in the spaghetti factory for the rest of your life, will you do it? Quickly, my engineer mind raced for an answer. If I said no, I'd be disobedient. If I said yes, I'd be lying. Checkmate. He had me. So what do I say? And I remember saying to God in that car that day in Fairlorn, New Jersey in the parking lot of a spaghetti factory. God, if you want me to work at this spaghetti factory for the rest of my life, I'll do it and I'll never complain again. I didn't realize that when I made that promise to God, what he was doing inside of me and what that promise meant. What the promise was really saying, God, if you'll be pleased by me working here, I will never complain again, I will work here, so you may have the joy of being pleased by me. Let me tell you what that did for me. It taught me the joy of obedience. I don't want to give you the wrong impression, don't put me on any pedestal. What I wanted to simply convey to you through that real life, lived experience is this. All the Bible verses you can quote, All the wonderful songs that you you can sing, they pale in value if you are not living a life to please God. When I stepped out of that car that day and I went back into that factory, my whole perspective changed. I started to work as if I was the owner in terms of value and the pride that I took in my work and quality of my work. People would come to me and say, are you a Christian? I said, what do you mean am I a Christian? They said, the way you work. I said, I am. Now, I'd love to tell you that after that, man, I got my engineering job. It was about eight months later. I worked as a, in a stockroom boy for Sears and Roebuck. I worked as a courier for AT&T. I worked as a janitor sweeping the rug and sweeping the floor rather. I did all those things. And, and then when I got my engineering job and worked in consulting engineering for six years, God had done some work inside of me so that all I wanted to do was to please him. And I want you to understand the value of what that may mean. And I end my conversation with you today by simply saying to you, precious child of God don't play with our Father. If you're going to serve Him, serve Him and serve Him in alignment with sacred Scripture. Don't equivocate, don't cut corners, don't take shortcuts, do what Scripture says and you'll be the beneficiary of all of the promises of God. Why? Just like Jesus says, I take joy in pleasing the Father. May I pray with you? Come on, if we're going to applaud the Lord, let's applaud the Lord. Would you stand with me, please? I want us to have some altar ministry here. It's just us today. It's just us. If you are someone where God's been bothering you, you may say, what do you mean by that? That's an odd statement. Someone once asked me, Dr. Ireland, what does the voice of God sound like? I said, when you cut through all the technical biblical terms, technical theological issues, it's the voice that keeps bothering you. And if you've been bothered by God, I don't know what it is that God's been asking you to do. He may be asking you to forgive someone, or to go and ask for forgiveness, or whatever hard thing God's been troubling you to do but for whatever reason it's been delayed your obedience I want you to come and gather here at the altar you now know God's been bothering you I want to pray with you so that this thing won't drag out between you and God you're gonna you're gonna handle as the cliche says your business (laughs) come on If that's you I'm speaking to you you came to the right service today come on we're here I want to help you by praying for you and ask the Holy Spirit to help you do all of what God wants you to do to be obedient to all of the will of God for your life whatever it may be come on sir come on ma'am for some of you single people you may have been dating someone I know she looks good but if God's been saying that's not the one let her go. Oh, I know he looks good. He's six foot two, 175 pounds, six-pack abs. He looks pretty. But if God says he's not the one, then he's not the one. And if I want you to come, if that's you, because the Holy Spirit wants to help you. God never asks you to do something that's going to hurt you. It'll always help you. But if you're struggling, the worst thing to do is to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When God prompts you and tells you, go and ask that person to forgive you because of how you spoke to them, or go and do this, or go and do that, and you hesitate and try to reason and rationalize it away, it's the worst thing you can do because you build up this hardness of soul towards the Lord. And if that's you, come on. I want to pray with you, that the Lord may help you. Thank you, ma'am, thank you, sir. Your joy should be pleasing the Father. As you're here at the altars, take a moment, close your eyes, block out the world around you. It's you in Jesus now. Jesus wants to minister to you. Father, I thank you so much for these incredible men and women, young people. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to go into their hearts and make obedience easy and comfortable. And make obedience pleasurable and joyous. I pray, Lord, that you take away all of the images from their minds that make obedience to you so frightening and terrifying. Give them faith to obey all of your will. I pray that you go ahead of each one. Prepare the hearts of the people that they may have to talk with. Prepare the hearts of those that they may have to have tough conversations with so that the conversation goes smoothly and uninterrupted. Lord, I thank you for your blessings to fall upon each one in a unique way. Let the power of your spirit work in our hearts, Lord. I ask you this in the name of Jesus. Stay there. Let the Lord minister to you.